We just completed a rather intense study on the imagination. The purpose of that study, besides obvious reasons of helping us to sanctify the imagination, has also been to better prepare us to live out our days in the face of increasing evils with faithfulness to God so we can honor His name no matter what we have to face in the coming days. I told you that several follow-up studies would be forthcoming that are related to the imagination, and among them would be a study of the symbolic meaning of words and the spiritual warfare connected to our speech is the symbolic way that we communicate, directly related to image and symbol and the imagination. We begin that study now, here in this message. But the purpose of this study is as focused as the previous one was on the imagination. Our words are the manifestation of the level of spiritual reality, or the lack of it, which is in our hearts. In order to be equipped to engage the coming days in which we are called to live, we must have a clean imagination. We must also have a pure heart, and our hearts are fully disclosed by what comes out of our mouth. That being said, before I can begin this study in earnest, I have to offer a painful confession. A few weeks ago, I got a very encouraging note from a man I trust and respect. He's a true man of God, and it shows in every area of his life that I've ever been exposed to anyway. He wrote in response to a message I had given in which I addressed the increased attack on the God-ordained identity of man and woman My own personal anger over the insanity of those attacks bled through when in the midst of what was otherwise an accurate and, I believe, God-ordained message, I gave in to a bit of my own personal human anger. Now, you might not have thought of it as coming from anger if you'd listened, but it was. I used a level of descriptive language in my rebuke of the foolishness I was seeking to counter, but which was not helpful to my purpose, and in the long run was even counter to it. But I did it simply to give myself a momentary but false feeling of satisfaction by venting my anger that way. So, though it didn't sound angry, that was the spirit behind it. I want you to hear the wisdom and candor in the godly rebuke my wise friend communicated to me, all the while not once sounding negative or discouraging but on the contrary, strengthening me to do what I do and to do it far better. The note read like this. Hey Clay, another encouraging and uplifting message of depth and impact. Your anatomical references, both in English and Spanish, stand out as perhaps your personal choice for shock value in the midst of an inspired presentation. It was simply a distraction to me. Do you see how he accurately nails my wrong motives and exposes my impurity of heart while all the time still encouraging me to higher and better things? Then he went further to explain the long-term negative possible effects of my self-indulgent anger. He said, It might cause some parents of younger children to avoid or delay passing on an early introduction to great material. Love you, my friend. Well, I knew he was right. And I was disturbed by my failure, again, to bring a consistently pure word. Now, the reason that I was especially sensitive to his wise warning was because for several months now I have been in spiritual pain 
over what I knew was a mixture in me, a deep flaw in my heart that for years has hindered the clarity and purity of my life, which was, of course, then reflected in the clarity and purity or unclarity and impurity of my work. I knew this had to change, but I was seemingly powerless to deal with it no matter how much I tried. The constant danger for the prophetic soul is to begin to believe that the message of warning and the call to repent is to them, all those wicked, rebellious fools who are willfully heading towards utter destruction and dragging us down with them. The example set by the prophet Daniel should have been enough to keep me better focused. When he interceded for the restoration of Jerusalem at the end of the 70 years of exile, he was careful to cast no stones at them. I prayed to the Lord, my God, and made my confession and said, O Lord, the great and dreadful God, keeping covenant and mercy to them that love him and to them that keep his commandments, we have sinned and we have committed iniquity. And we have done wickedly and have rebelled by departing from the precepts of your judgments. O Lord, to us belongs confusion of face. Daniel 9, verses 4 through 8. Now, I know where I was in the 1960s and 70s and the 80s. How in my youthful rebelliousness and lustful selfishness, I contributed to the present Babylonian invasion of our current culture. And in praying and studying for this particular study, I came face to face with current sins in me, which I do not have to reach back to the 60s or the 70s to find evidence for. They're painfully present to me here and now. God, who knows the end from the beginning, holds me to account for my part in the corporate contribution I've made to the present evil we're now all suffering from. Yes, I'm forgiven the moment I ask him in truth to forgive me. And I I don't wallow in any sense of shame or false ongoing guilt about it. Once I come to him with it, it's finished. But we're far too quick to claim our legal position before we bring ourselves to truly face how and where we have been failing and then to drink deeply of the cleansing fountain of sanctification which we have been refusing Yeah, we're forgiven. Yeah, God loves us. That never changes. But as sure as that is true, he is also not going to put up with ongoing, undealt with sin in our life. He will bring us to real change and not mere positional righteousness. It's not fully dealt with until we change. And we cannot change apart from the power of his word by his spirit transforming us within. So please don't get sidetracked on any questions of whether I understand my positional place in Christ as being forgiven and righteous. I know all about that. I say that respectfully. But I think one of our great dangers is our preoccupation with our positional relationship legally without dealing face-to-face, heart-to-heart with the living God so that he can deal with the unfinished business in our hearts that is manifesting itself in destructive ways. Daniel understood corporate responsibility, so he did not give in to false superiority. That's why he could pray with power. Well, I cried out to the Lord. Here's what the Lord said to me. Son, 
In your human frailty and frustration at evil, you have allowed yourself to become jaded by the very cultural rot you seek to rebuke. Guard yourself against this, and remember that it does not produce what you hope it will produce. It actually produces its very opposite. The use of hell's vocabulary under a hellish motivation of spirit obviously cannot damage hell. Speaking the language of Mordor only furthers the spirit of Mordor. Besides that, it's also a waste of bullets. You misfire every time you speak your own words and not mine. Jesus said in John chapter 7, verse 18, He who speaks his own words seeks his own glory. But he who speaks for the one who sent him is true, and there's no unrighteousness in him. By sliding over into my own anger and using less than godly language to express it, for that moment I failed to speak for the one who sent me and therefore sought my own glory. For this and every previous time I have made this error, I ask and receive God's forgiveness. But I also ask Mary's and my children's forgiveness. And I ask yours, my audience. The following is the result of an earnest and soul-searching time of prayer. I pray what I offer here will help you if you need it, but I don't offer it in any arrogant sense of teaching you, for I'm offering it more as a soul-cleansing catharsis for myself. Though anger is certainly at the root of the problem and needs a thorough examination also, which we will do in time. I felt the need to address the symbolic nature of words themselves. Why? Words set us apart from all other beings in creation as the image bearers of God. The gift of articulate speech is one of the chief ways in which we are most like God. This is why there are so many clear warnings in Scripture about the danger of misusing speech. What father would give a shotgun to his child without warning and training? Words bring either life or death. Right words are needed to counter wrong words. We've been told which to choose. Deuteronomy 28 says, I've set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life. It's up to us how we will respond to the huge responsibility of carrying the godlike power of words. God helping us, we will seek him to help us use this gift worthily, especially as we see the day approaching. So with that, let us get started in earnest. James chapter 3 verse 2 tells us, We all offend in many ways, and he who is able to not offend in speech is able to bridle his entire body. Like Isaiah, I have been a man of unclean lips, dwelling amidst a people of unclean lips. Unlike Isaiah, I was not moved to this awareness or this confession by a great vision from heaven, nor do I believe Isaiah's sinful speech was on the same low order as mine has been. What provoked this cry from Isaiah was his vision of the holiness of God. The voice of the seraphim, holy, 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 revealed that he and all of Israel were excluded from being able to join in that song, for the reference to unclean lips refers to Isaiah's awareness that his own lips were unworthy until the fire from the altar touched those lips. I doubt Isaiah was a cusser. Now what I mean by that is the agony of soul that brought Isaiah to his knees was not some conviction that he was using dirty or vulgar language per se. 
So if he was not, and that is not what this encounter was about, what caused him to say of himself, I am ruined? The word ruined, dama, in Hebrew means destroyed or put to silence. The idea is I'm so shaken by what I'm seeing that I feel ruined to the point of not being able to speak. The horror which gripped him at the sight and sound of holiness which poured toward him was the result of a powerful self-awareness of his uncleanness of speech, speech which you and I most likely would have considered pure compared to ours. At the time of this vision, Isaiah was already a young prophet in Judah and a godly influence in the court of King Uzziah. Yet the vision of the holiness of God reduced him to despair because even his best language was shown up as evil in the light of heaven's pure voice. If this is true of Isaiah, where would that put me? No wonder we would not consider Isaiah's speech unclean. Our standard is so low we have lost our ability to even judge There's a recent Christian film called Time Changer. It's the story of a Bible college in the late 1870s where a controversy breaks out between two professors and is settled by one of them going in a time machine to his future, our present, though the characterization of the college professor is stilted and a little religious. They do make some great points we need to face. In one scene... The displaced, befuddled Christian professor is invited to go to the movies with a church group. Suddenly, he's seen running out of the theater, yelling to the top of his lungs as if the building is on fire. But what has him in this state is not a physical fire, but a spiritual one. He's terrorized at the language that struck his ears from the movie screen. When I saw this scene, I knew that the mad professor was the only one in the story at that point that was in touch with reality. I am, and the people I dwell among are, a people of unclean lips, and our lips are the clear measure of our hearts. When I quote Isaiah 6 and confess to being a man of unclean lips who came from a people of unclean lips, I'm not equating myself with Isaiah. No, I cannot claim to have Isaiah's unclean lips, for in my opinion his were not ruined on the level mine were. I suppose when it comes to sin... It's all pretty much filthy rags. And Isaiah may turn to me one day and say, Clay, don't think you were worse off than me. We were both far short of the purity of heaven. But if Isaiah was so shaken by this encounter, I can't help but wonder what I would have been like if I were in his shoes. For by the time I was eight years old, I was known as that little boy who cusses so much. That sad fact was announced gleefully by my older brother in family conversation as a kind of amusing criticism. I was only embarrassed by it for the moment. Then I walked out the house cursing under my breath that I had been told on. Isaiah's reference is not only to himself, but to the people he came from, and I didn't arrive as a child with my own vocabulary. Mine was a learned vice, and I suppose that obvious fact is maybe what mitigated the adult reaction to the news of my infamous talent. If fathers tend to want their children to outdo them in life, I had a head start on it, for I already had, at the age of eight, a poetic ability to weave words together in such an unexpectedly perverse way that I could have won some sort of prize if prizes were given out for sheer ingenious adulteration of language. If an adult had been in the contest, I would have won the contest. 
My mother was never the source of it and was grieved by it all my life. My father, however, was notoriously fluent in cussing, and because of that, he was powerless to awaken in me the heart change needed to purge the flow of poison from my heart and then my mouth. For Jesus said it is out of the heart, via the mouth, that curses come. Matthew 15, verses 18 through 19. The problem was my heart, not my mouth. Well, when my father did sheepishly try to correct me, he used the powerless edict that many misguided parents have impotently used to, quote, do as I say and not as I do. It had the opposite effect. I left the room cussing under my breath that I had been told on, but also that now I had been told to do as I say and not as I do. I learned from my father the art of cussing and honed it in every neighborhood ball game, fist fight, or boyish conversation until it was so warped and woofed into my inner being that it was as much a part of who I was as my skin or my eye color. As years passed and my father's anger and rages became more inflammatory, so did mine. It was one of the saddest ironies of my early Christian life that my cussing rants were usually exacerbated not by my father's anger, per se, but by his drinking. I saw his alcohol as the source of all of our family woes and could eloquently return evil for evil when we would argue. Later, as I grew to know the Lord more, he pointed out to me that it was not what goes into a man that defiles him, but what comes out of the man, Matthew 15, verse 11. My father's drinking, though certainly a problem, was not nearly as damaging in the spirit realm as my cussing over his drinking was. And to add even more guilt on my part, I was the one claiming the spiritually superior position. So I was guilty on several levels, first of dishonoring my father. Now, I know you might say, but he was not honorable. But the word for honor in Hebrew is kavod, and it means in this context to give proper weight to. It means to give proper respect to the facts as they are. My father is my father, the source of my earthly being. I or you or any of us can do that. No matter how broken they may be, it doesn't mean we are excusing their evil. We can resist the evil and should, but we must not in the process deny who that person is to us. What might the Holy Spirit have been able to do if I had been respectful and loving to my father in spite of his sin? The certainty was that as long as I returned evil for evil and did it in rage, no good could come from it and only evil would be returned to me. Second, I was guilty of unrighteous judgment. I didn't love my father. I hated him and his drinking. So I equated his sin with his person and began to deceive myself that by hating him, I was hating evil. There was no love in any aspect of my response to him. Third, I dishonored and hated him in the name of religion. Though by this time we were in the Jesus movement and we declared very strongly that we were not people of religion. We had a relationship. Yeah, yeah. All true except for when it came to me and my father. Then it was just sheer religion devoid of the presence and character and heart of God. Just an angry boy raging at his broken father but doing it in the name of the one who would have washed my father's feet instead of damning his drinking. Many years after these sad encounters, when I and my mother finally repented of our judgmentalism 
and the accompanying ungodly self-righteousness, my father stopped drinking. But here's a painful and interesting point. He stopped drinking. I didn't stop cussing. It was warped and woofed into the fabric of my soul. That it was the leaf growing out of a tree of old, early-rooted anger was obvious to the wise, but I was not wise. I simply developed a compartmental way of thinking that allowed for cussing fits in between singing for Jesus and teaching Bible studies. Compartmentalized thinking is a fancy way of saying double-minded. Or as James tells us, he's, James is so focused on this dangerous mixture that he spends almost the entire third chapter just addressing it. By my early 20s, I was considered a teacher of the Word of God. It's noteworthy that James begins his entire address on the dangers of the tongue by first addressing those who want to be teachers, driving home to those who instruct others that they need to be wary of claiming such a position since, quote, those who teach will be held to a higher standard than others and will therefore receive the greater condemnation when they sin. For we often stumble and offend in many ways. If anyone does not offend in their speech, he's fully developed and mature, able to control his whole body and to curb his entire nature. If we set in the horse's mouths bits to make them obey us, we can turn their whole bodies about. Likewise, look at the ships. Though they are so great and driven by rough winds, they are steered by a very small rudder wherever the impulse of the helmsman determines. Even so, the tongue is a little member. And it can boast of great things. See how much wood a tiny spark can set ablaze. The tongue is a fire, a world of wickedness set among our members, contaminating and depraving the whole body and setting on fire the wheel of a man's nature, being itself ignited by hell. Notice the direct link between our words and our bodily desires. We'll look at that more in a moment. For every kind of animal can be trained by men, but the tongue no man can tame. It's a restless, undisciplined evil full of deadly poison. This doesn't get any better, does it? With it we bless the Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who were made in God's image. Out of the same mouth comes forth blessing and cursing. These things, brothers, ought not to be. Notice, too, though men were often addressed in first century culture apart from women, and we must not make too much of this here, it seems noteworthy to say that it was to men that he gave this warning. It's a hyper-masculine trait to cuss. I didn't say it was masculine. I said it's hyper-masculine, false masculine. And when women do it, it's a sign either of her woundedness or of the level of corruption that manifests when women act as impurely as men. Does a fountain send forth simultaneously fresh water and bitter, James asks? Or does a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine figs? Neither can a salt spring furnish fresh water. Who is there among you who is wise and intelligent? Then let him by his noble living show forth his good works with the humility which is the attribute of true wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and contention in your hearts... Do not pride yourselves on such arrogance and thereby reject the truth. Again, do you notice the prideful arrogance and male ego is celebrating bad language? James goes on, Such 
thinking is not from above, but it is earthly, soulish, and demonic. For wherever there is jealousy and evil contention, there will also be confusion and every kind of evil practice. Do you notice that James lists the characteristics of a godly person that speaks godly words is first wise, intelligent, noble, and humble. We could spend an hour on each one of those words, but let me just examine them briefly and see where they speak to the opposite in us. Are we wise? Are we intelligent? Are we noble? Are we humble? Wisdom, for brevity's sake, will say is simply thinking God's thoughts after him so we can do God's works after him. Proverbs 16.23 says, The heart of the wise instructs the mouth. Intelligent. In this context, this is referring to not envying the wicked. Those who are intelligent are not necessarily those who have a high IQ, but those who know how to put proper value on things that deserve it and not give value to things that don't. Proverbs 21, verses 5 and 6, especially in the message, says it like this, It's better to be wise than to be strong. Intelligence outranks muscle any day. Noble. What does it mean to be noble? A a man or woman who is noble is someone who is giving, life-affirming. Someone who establishes what is good, not only for their own sake, but for the sake of those around them, especially those weaker than them. Isaiah 32, verse 8 says, A noble man, and of course a woman, makes noble plans. And by them, the noble person is able to stand. This means that the man or woman not only stands by his or her plans, but he's able to stand because his plans are worthy. The man who uses vulgarity to express himself is manifesting the fact that he has no nobility in his vision for the future, for life, or for those around him. He's planning to fail because he speaks curses from his heart. What is coming from his heart determines his destiny, Proverbs 4 tells us. Watch over your heart with all diligence, for out of it, by by way of your mouth, come the forces that determine your destiny. It's very painful for me when I recall several occasions when I angrily, or even more sadly, casually, cursed in the presence of a loved one, especially of my older children. In each of these memories, I instantly saw several stages of expression pass over their faces. The first was a momentary brief shock, as if I had struck them in the face, and I had. Not physically, of course, but maybe worse, verbally. And it wasn't even aimed at them. That's not, that's not, I was, I was never aiming the language at them. If I had have been aiming the language at them, there's still mercy and grace for it, but I just want to make you understand. I'm not confessing some horrible thing from our point of view. It would maybe not be considered horrible, but I'm trying to communicate it from a much more important point of view, and that's the Lord's. Then, after that brief moment of shock, the second was withdrawal, caused by a wounded spirit. Then the third expression on their face, all this taking place in a matter of two or three seconds, 
The third expression was what I might call bargaining, very much like the bargaining we find in people who are processing through the stages of grief, a mental attempt to find some reasonable means of rationalizing for the reason I would use such language, when it's so totally opposite of what I claim to do and be and love and believe. Then the last expression on their face was a sad adjustment to who I really am. Now, well, you might ask, then how in the world could you have ever done that more than once in your life if you saw what it was doing to those you loved? I have no valid answer except willful, prideful sin and the blindness that it produces. To make matters even worse, I not only was aware of these phases passing through my wounded loved ones when I would use ungodly language, but I was just as aware of my own sense of disappointment when I happened to experience it on rare occasions with men that I looked up to and, and, and loved and respected. Hypocritical as it surely must sound, I would always think, wow, I guess I didn't know him as well as I thought I did, which would be followed by, well, I'll never quite feel the same about him as I did in my previous days. Yeah, it's sad, amazingly stupid, hypocritical, and amazing that this did not awaken me to my own sin and its effects on people I love. The greater answer can be found in the next word that James uses to describe those whose speech is life-giving and healing. The next word is humble. Humility is always the same as the fear of the Lord. Proverbs 8.13, the fear of the Lord is to hate what is evil. Therefore, I hate pride and arrogance and corruption and perverse speech. Now, what about those who speak ungodly language? James says there's characteristics of them, too. First is bitterness. Bitterness always refers to poison, and it's a specific virulent kind of poison that is meant to destroy all living things. Psalm 64, verse 3 says, They sharpen their tongues like swords and aim their words like arrows with poison on the, on the tips. That's the idea. Bitter words with poisoned arrow tips. Romans three fourteen through 18, Their words are full of bitterness. They're quick to hurt. The path of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God in them. The very opposite of what we've just looked at from the positive side of James's warnings. Well, those who speak evil, those who curse, those who let their mouth be used for evil, not only are bitter, but it says they're earthly. Earthly, what does that mean? Well, it means with no thought of the eternal nature of their words, no thought of the spirit world and the fact that we are living on a temporary planet heading for a day of judgment. Ecclesiastes 5.2 says, Do not be rash with your mouth, for God is in heaven and you are on the earth. Matthew 12.36, Jesus said, I tell you now, you will give account on the day of judgment for every careless word you speak. 
Proverbs 10.19 says, Where there is much speaking, sin is unavoidable, but he who holds his tongue is wise. That, by the way, is not a favorite verse for someone like me whose job is mostly talking. Well, the next characteristic of the ungodly mouth is soulishness. Soulishness. What, what is soulishness? Well, I would say it's self-referencing, measuring what you're saying by your own wisdom instead of higher godly wisdom. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says the soulish man, King James says the natural man, the word is soulish, cannot understand the Spirit of God. It's foolishness to him. I suppose the best way of explaining this is the idea that your own viewpoint is so clear and flawless that your angry estimation of what is wrong is necessary for the clear truth to be understood. And so to make sure everyone gets it, a few cuss words sprinkled in will increase the volume and get everybody's attention. The pride in this is evident. But there's another element, more subtle, but just as tricky, and that is a fallen demand for justice according to our own definition of justice. Without realizing it, or maybe sometimes even realizing it, God forbid, we can become so just in our own estimation that God is the one who needs to be awakened along with everybody else. If God was awake and doing his job of bringing down just judgment on every situation we are upset about, then we wouldn't have to do his job for him. And that kind of arrogance can't help but bring the presence of the the next characteristic of those whose speech is ungodly, and that is the demonic. Earthly, soulish, and finally demonic. Jesus said in Matthew five thirty four through 37, Swear not at all, but just say yes and no. Anything beyond that is of the evil one. We'll examine aspects of all these in more detail in later studies, but because of the following point, and because it's so important, let me bring it to our attention here for now regarding how the demonic is related to evil language. Remember back in James 3 where we read that the tongue, when it is bridled, has the power then to bridle the rest of our entire body? Is that not an amazing thought that when you bring your tongue under the control of the Holy Spirit, every other appetite in your life will then begin to line up? Or to say it oppositely, more negatively, if you don't control your mouth, you will not have control over certain aspects of your bodily desires and drives. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29 through chapter 5, verse 13, and by the way, when you read that, please forget the chapter delineations because they stick chapter 5 in the middle of a thought that Paul is wanting to be. It was one thought, and sticking chapter 5 in it messes up the flow of thought. So read the whole thing, chapter 4, 29 through 5, 13. There's a direct link between unclean speech and sexual sin. People who have lived in sexually perverse ways know this is true. In fact, we all know it, if we're honest. There's a direct connection between the words we use and the bodily responses those words arouse. I believe that though this is obviously a manifestation of the fallen human aspect of our nature, whenever a person willfully gives their speech over to certain kinds of perverse, salacious, vulgar, or explicit language, This very act invites 
evil spirits into action. Now, even if we lay aside the possible demonic aspect, we know our bodies respond to our words, and to be flippant with our words is dangerous. If that's so, then to be salacious and lustful with our words is going to bring that same spirit into operation in our body, and to be damning with our words, well, it's obvious where I'm going. We'll examine this issue more later on when we talk about kinds of evil speech and what's happening in the culture. We'll need to focus on this a great deal more than we have time for here, but I'm stressing it now because it's so important that we begin to get this in our thinking and into our deep hearts. Once this truth was so recognized by all of us across the board in the culture that destructive words and dangerous phrases were resisted even by non-believers. Even non-Christians were sensitive to it, and common culture rejected it outright. But now, we're so desensitized to it that even some believers have to be reawakened to the great danger of ignoring these warnings. I'm one of them. It's nearly unbelievable to me that I could live this long and know this much of the Scriptures and seek the heart of God the way I do and yet have to be brought again to realize how I have not only tolerated this evil, but at times practiced it. The only reason I'm willing to embarrass myself with this confession is because I'm even more concerned for the widespread effect of it among believers, that I, and so I'm, I'm willing to talk about my own sin. I've truly sinned against the Lord and against my wife and against my children and against others by, at times, giving place to speech which is, according to the Word of God, set on fire by hell. Maybe it's good for me to see so clearly how blind spots in us can be right in our face, literally under our nose where our mouth is, and still not get it. (laughs) Now, before you start trying to imagine, well, Clay, just how bad are you? I want to say that I did not walk around cussing out my wife or my children or anybody else I might have been speaking with at the time, but I did succumb to what I find is a common danger among men, especially what we might call passionate men, men who have deep feelings and convictions, and that is the self-deception that passionate feelings over wrongs in the world allow for passionate verbalized cursing of those things. And those who do not share the passion deserve to be shaken out of their effeminate passivity and shocked into reality. So if you get your little virgin ears burned now and then in the face of some new revelation of evil, rather than hear it as an intrusion into your otherwise quiet Victorian existence, hear it as a blast of a war trumpet. Well, yeah, that all sounds very prophetic and masculine and single-minded and courageous. It just happens to be a lie. It will take us a bit of focused study to get to all the roots of this lie and to hopefully, by God's help, root out both the lie and its fruit. The lie is to believe that integrity to goodness allows for passionate evil speech about what threatens that goodness, and that cursing is a way of expressing truth passionately. Well, that's that's a lie. And the evil fruit of believing that lie is, number one, the disintegration of the power of language, both culturally and spiritually. When we use 
broken language. When we speak the language of Mordor, we lose the power to speak the pure language of truth. Number two, the disintegration of the soul of the speaker, because you can't speak disintegrating words unless it's coming from a disintegrating heart. Number three, we give platform in such speech to evil spirits. Even if the demonic is not fully present in the moment of such evil speaking, giving vent to such speech certainly opens a door wide for their entry. Proverbs 25 verse 28 says, Like a city that is broken down and without walls, so is a man who has no self-control. Well, what's the obvious meaning of a city whose walls are broken down? It means they're subject to the invasion of the enemy. How does a man's walls get broken down when he has no self-control? How is self-control manifested? By what comes out of his mouth. But the good news is, Proverbs 10, verse 21 says, The lips of the righteous feed many. Now, get this. When we speak curses, even if we think we're motivated by right things and we're rebuking evil and we're destroying evil, we're not really destroying evil, we're just venting. We're wasting our bullets. We're shooting into the ground. We're misfiring. At, at, that's at best what we're doing. That doesn't mention all the worst things that we've already listed. But a noble person, a humble person, an intelligent and wise person is a person who uses his mouth creatively under the power of the Holy Spirit to make battle plans that produce life-giving good and truth. So the lips of the righteous feed many. Remember the reference to those whose mouths are a fountain of life, that they are called noble? That's the meaning of the word noble. Remember that noble means they make plans for good on behalf of those who are weaker and unable to provide for themselves. Peter borrows from the book of Proverbs that whoever loves life and wants to see good days must keep their tongues from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. So when we give vent to negative language, cursing language, vulgar language, no matter how justified we may think we are in the moment, we are not producing positive, real goodness that can be useful for feeding life to others. Uh, picture it as, as a, a flow of pure water, but every now and then there's this pocket of poison. Pocket of poison. Pocket of poison. It may seem like you're, you're getting a point across, but really you're at best distracting from the point and at worst adulterating the point. Hebrews 13, verse 15 through 16 says, We are to offer to God the fruit of our lips, which is the sacrifice of praise, and not forget to do good and to give. See, the same Spirit is through this whole line of Scripture. What are we envisioned to do? What are our plans for providing life and goodness to those we seek to serve? And most importantly of all, what kind of fruit from our lips are we bringing as we bring offerings to God? The answer to those questions is measured first and foremost by what comes out of our hearts, and that's measured first and foremost by what comes out of our mouth. May the Lord help me and any of you who maybe relate to me in this on whatever level, some more than others, 
But God helping us, we will become wise about this and not religious and not legalistic and not prudish, but also not compromising and foolish either. Now, in the closing time that we've got together, I want to look at a little bit of Hebrew help here. Did you know when a modern Israeli carpenter working on a rooftop hits his hand with a hammer, he has to speak Arabic if he wants to cuss? Why? Well, because there are no words in Hebrew for cursing. It's very informative to see what God thinks of a thing by the availability or lack of availability of words for it in the biblical language. There are no cuss words in Hebrew. When Esau learns that his brother Jacob has stolen his birthright and his blessing, he's so highly moved to negative emotion that this would have been a perfect time for Hebrew cuss words to fly in all directions. After all, Esau was not exactly a Sunday school teacher, was he? It says in Genesis 27 verse 34, He cried out with loud and bitter cries and begged, Bless me also, my father, bless me. This not only tells us there are no cuss words in Hebrew, and that even a carnal man like Esau had none to resort to in his time of anguish and rage, but it also tells us something vitally important about the power of words. Would most people you know, even those you attend church with, be upset like this over their father's blessing having been given up to another instead of to them? Or would they have simply looked at the situation blankly and said, oh, well, it's only words. Think before you answer. I believe most of us have lost all true awareness of the power of words. Make the use of our words and the words of others so lightly that we read stories like that of Esau and offer shallow respect to it as a Bible story, but really feel almost no direct relation to its meaning where our own life and words are concerned. We think we have a superior view of things and that the superstitious, quaint little Bible story needs to be read, maybe, and given some place in our Bible knowledge. But overall, we wise, modern, informed, scientific American Christians or English Christians or Western Christians need not get too overwrought concerning a blessing which once was spoken cannot be retracted or taken away. But Jacob says, I have blessed him, and he is blessed. And he was so shaken by the ramifications of it that the scripture says he trembled exceedingly when he realized what had happened. Why? Because he rightly knew that what he had spoken had creative power to fulfill itself. Quote, I have made your brother your ruler and ruler over all that pertains to you. End quote. That's what he believed his words would do to his son's future. How would you or I change our speech if we believed our words had power to determine outcomes? Now, of course, I do not mean this in any magical sense, but I do mean it in its biblical sense. Would we be so quick to damn this thing or that thing or say to hell with a person? If we thought for a moment that those words might have power for evil, well, they do. And we don't think they do, but that doesn't diminish the fact that what we say has the power of life or death in it. Proverbs 18.21, life and death are in the power of the tongue, and those who love to use their tongue 
will eat the fruit of whatever direction they use their tongue for. Proverbs 21.23, those who guard their tongues guard their lives and keep it from calamity. Proverbs 12.13, evildoers are trapped by their sinful words. If we think this is nothing more than fearful superstition from a less educated age, we will go on in our willful ignorance and arrogant self-conceit, and something valuable will die because of it. If we grasp that we are made in God's image and that we were given in the garden the task of naming creation, Genesis 2 verse 20, then we will become more careful of what we name things and people around us. If we don't really believe we are kings and priests and all that, that's just religious stuff and we kind of believe it, but not really, then we won't change. If we do believe, we will begin to make real consistent, lasting effort to submit our mouth and our heart to God by changing our hearts. The Hebrew word for word is davar. That's also the Hebrew word for bees. Now, in English, when words are the same, they may have no connection whatsoever. We cannot bear to go to the dentist has nothing to do with finding a bear in your kitchen eating out of your refrigerator. Unless, of course, in the process of getting away from the bear, you hurt yourself and break your teeth and have to go to the dentist. Or your reading light is out has nothing to do with trying to eat light late at night. But in Hebrew, wherever a word is used, it will have a direct bearing on whatever else the word is used for in another place. So what does the word debar, word, have to do with the word debar, bees? Well, for one thing, and only one of many, both words refer to something that can both bless and curse. Bees can make honey. Bees can sting. Words can be sweet. Words can sting. Words have the power to bless and curse, can be sweet or wounding. This is only a small part of the many layers of truth that Hebrew texts have to offer, but it should help serve our purpose here as a picture so we might maybe build a picture in our imaginations that will help bring these truths to our mind. Are our words sweet or do they sting? Just some closing thoughts that I hope maybe will open our minds and our hearts. Let me go back to a point I previously mentioned about cursing. Remember when I told about the looks that passed across the faces of my young victims at times when I gave vent to ugly words? I mentioned that their faces registered in a few seconds four distinct responses. Shock, bargaining, withdrawal, and then a reevaluation of who I am. still hurts me to talk about it. When we speak curses, we isolate ourselves. For the moment we are speaking, we are alone in our poison. No one wants to be around a fountain of overflowing curses or even a momentary squirting or leaking of them. Secondly, every time we misuse our tongues for evil, we decrease our fluency in good. Just watch someone who's usually vulgar try to speak correctly in the presence of someone he does not want to offend. 
He will stumble over his words or just go silent. He will find that he cannot selectively speak if he has become so habituated by cussing that it's just an automatic presence in him. And his mind has a very difficult time making the adjustment without fear that something's going to unwillingly pop out. This will hinder his ability to relate and communicate depending on how bad he has the habit, or I should say, how bad the habit has him. Thirdly, it's a sad reality communicated to me by people in the law enforcement and legal professions that there are truly some people behind bars today because they never learned to speak or communicate in a coherent way. Cursing had become their only passionate means of expression, and when it came time to defend themselves or explain their actions or offer an apologetic for their point of view in some dispute, they were powerless because they were wordless. The only tools they had at hand were broken, rusted, or even deadly curse words. Extreme cases, yes, once upon a time, maybe more extreme, but becoming more common now. We're no longer talking in this section about inner-city throwaway kids with no parents or latchkey parents who are exposed to gunfire and, and the evils of the streets. This expression I just described, or a lack of ability to offer meaningful expression, is becoming more, becoming more common in the, the suburbs. Well, we set ourselves before God, whose word is life and ask for his Holy Spirit to bring a coal from the holy altar and with the flame of God cleanse our lips, purify our hearts, and make us a fountain of life that can extinguish the flames set on fire by hell. God help us. Let's pray that he will and that we will receive that grace. Father, for me, primarily me, and any man or woman God forbid that a woman would have to pray this, not because she's more sinful to have to pray it, but because it's more damaging to her feminine soul if she has come under the power of this kind of evil. And it's men's fault if that's happened. But Father, have mercy on all of us. Cleanse our lips. Purify our hearts. Wash us, Father, from the the filthiness that we have allowed to come up from inside of us and then that we floated around in in the culture. Purge it from us. Fill us with your Holy Spirit. Put tongues of fire in our mouth for holiness and truth. We pray for not only ourselves but for the generation that we've been called to be noble for that we would build a future that is full of goodness and life and truth and love and justice. We pray in Jesus' holy name, the Word who became flesh. Amen.